Welcome to FinTech at Haas. Today I'm joined by Moses Lowe, founder of Zendit and Haas alum from the class of 2015. Welcome, Moses. Cheers. Thanks for having me. For those that are unfamiliar, can you give us a bit of a background on what does Zendit do? And if there is an easy comparison to any US companies people might be more familiar with? Yeah, think of us like Stripe, but for Southeast Asia. So we help people accept money, send money, hold money. So a few more things than Stripe, maybe a Stripe and a Plaid combined. Um, and in Southeast Asia, the, the difference being in America, cards are pretty common where we are, APMs are pretty common or the alternate payment methods are cash, bank transfer, e-wallets, those are much more prevalent than cards. But how's COVID impacted the business so far? It's been a fun ride, I think. So there's a few things going on. One of my favorite things going through YC was listening to, I think it was Brian Chesky of Airbnb who had said one of the little known secrets that helped was that they raised in, I think it was 2008 that they raised. So they had this massive war chest going into the recession. Amazon raised in October, 1999. Google raised in, I wanna say July, 2000. Lots of these examples where some of the biggest companies we know now raised just before recessions. So I always kept that in the back of my mind um, and always trying to make sure that we have the war chest ready to go. And so when COVID hit and the inevitable real recession, I know that hasn't been reflected yet in the markets, um, we wanted to make sure we're well placed. So that's exciting because that's worked out to be true, which means whilst we are affected, we can start playing a market share game and then we can be greedy when everyone's fearful. So that means we're going to new verticals, new business lines, hiring when companies are going bankrupt and, and firing people pretty aggressive on the hiring front. So that's been exciting from a strategy point of view. Business point of view, yeah, we're strong in travel, we're strong in fintech. Those took massive hits. Travel went down in Southeast Asia like 98%. So that affects our business. But I think it's pretty clear from investors who've been through a few business cycles, like in times like this, go after the market share game. Yeah, I think what you mentioned about going after the market share game, if you can weather the short-term storm, there's plenty of prizes to be had long-term and the increasing shift to digital is going to enable a business like yours to to do really well. So if, if you have the money to double down in, in these uncertain times, I think the, the rewards are definitely there. Prior to Zendit, what were the solutions available to companies that wanted to accept these varied methods of payment that you mentioned? Yeah, so before us, people will have done manual work. So they may have uploaded CSVs to banks to send money. And they may have maintained 12 different bank accounts at the big banks and then sent money via CSV uploads. That would have taken anywhere from two hours to 24 hours or a few days. On the receiving side, it would have meant that each person had to go one by one to each different payment method. And then either there's APIs or there's CSVs or whatever poor way of integration that was offered at the time, but you had to go one by one. So what we really fixed was a, the problem of one integration to rule them all. So on the money outside, we're the first to build API disbursements, any bank account, any amount 24 seven, really simple sentence, but actually really hard to execute when there's no infrastructure. On the money inside or accepting payments side, we were the first to offer aggregated payment methods. So one integration and you can have your bank chances, have your cards, have your physical retail stores all through the one integration. I was watching online that you mentioned you went into YC originally to build the, the Venmo of Indonesia. It seems like Zendit has transformed from B2C to B2B. 
Was that a natural progression or was it a conscious decision? It was just failure, uh, repeated failure that forced us to do it. During Berkeley, we started Send It, a Bitcoin hackathon, like Berkeley, Stanford, and Dresden Harwood sponsored. And we built an app that sent money from the US to Indonesia. And so we thought, oh, that's a great idea. We convinced ourselves it was, and we got into YC with that idea. Six weeks in, we realized, hey, there's, there's three really big pillars that underline this business. All three assumptions are really wrong. So we pivoted to Venmo, and that one, we did pretty well. By demo day, six weeks later, we had like 16,000 users. So it was growing in the right way. About four months in, uh, I decided that we probably weren't the ones who were going to win the e-wallet race, given certain infrastructure was lacking in Indonesia. I do remember it was Easter 2016 when another founder sat down with us over lunch and asked us how we moved money so fast for the consumer app and who we use, which bank we use or which payment gateway we'd use. And we said, no one was as good as what we wanted. So we built it ourselves. And basically they said to us, Hey, if you give us these APIs, we'll pay you for it. And so we're like, okay, this is very different. So I think in a weekend, we built the APIs for dispersing funds because we already had it internally. And that began our B2B journey. So we then pivoted to that four months into the journey. So it's a very organic move. You, you tried something, it failed, but in the process of doing so, you actually built something that was useful and you can then sell that to many more businesses. That's great. According to PitchBook, you have raised around 20 million to date. How would you characterize the fundraising process? What's been the, the hardest part of that? How do I characterize the fundraising process? Each round is pretty different in how you do them. Like the seed is like biased by the YC demo day, where it's probably one of the easier rounds to raise that you can just promise the world and have no results and still raise money. But I think Rob Chandra gave like a very good playbook on how to raise money. You kind of think of your investors in, in tiers and let's say you have three tiers and the tiers are the, the smaller check sizes to the bigger check sizes. And you're trying to drive FOMO throughout that whole process. So you might set up your angels earlier on and you'll say, hey, we've, we're trying to raise um, 600,000, but we've already got 300,000 kind of committed. So we only need 300,000 more. And, and by doing that, you imply we only really need one of you because these angel firms might do two or $300,000 checks. Once you have a few that like you, you end up saying, hey, you know, we really like working with you, but we need a decision from you within 24 hours. Otherwise, we're probably going to move on to, you know, go with someone else. And that's the scary part. So then you go to your, to your next group, bigger check sizes, and you might say, hey, you know, we're oversubscribed um, for the initial size. We're now raising 1 million. We have 700,000 committed. So we're talking to a couple of firms like you. We were like you because of X, Y, Z. Um, and then you're talking to three folks again, and you're playing the same process, which is, hey, we need an answer from you within 24 hours or so, 48 hours. Otherwise, we're going to probably go with someone else. And you hope someone bites the bullet again. And that worked out for us. Then the final step was you go to tier ones, and those firms, you would book them three months in advance because your process is three to six months. And then I called them and said, hey, actually, we're going to close probably next week. Do you want to meet earlier? And so, I remember they were like, let's meet on Tuesday. But Rob's advice was, we know that partner meeting is always Monday morning. So don't meet on Tuesday because you've got to wait till the next week. So I was always really busy on like Monday afternoons and any time that wasn't Monday mornings. Um, but I remember one Monday morning, I kind of drove up and down Sand Hill Road and did you know three or four pitches. Excel's our biggest investor. So Excel 
we're in the room only about 18 minutes total i think nine minutes in about halfway ryan just said i want the deal and he was going to do the whole round by himself bigger number than i'd ever suggested rob gave the good advice never to say yes in the room so i didn't say yes it's the most money i've ever seen in my life but i didn't say yes was very scared left the room I was sitting in the petrol station on sand hill road with starbucks and we we're just like very jittery um I was messaging Rob on what to do, but he said, don't give up yet. Uh, then the SMS came in from the XL partner. Hey, let's figure out, let's do this. Um, what, you know, let's talk about terms. We talked about terms. We negotiated a little bit and then we closed over SMS a few hours later. So the theme is creating foam at all these different stages of the way you drive this dynamic. If you can set the story up right. It, it sounds like when you guys started, there was no one offering that turnkey solution to accepting payments online. How has that changed? What, what's the competitive landscape like? Yeah, uh, I, I think our history is one of building the first product that the country has seen and then other people pile in, uh, which is no surprise. If we had no competition, we're probably doing something wrong. And if we're doing something right, then lots of people will try to compete. So I think competition is increasing. We see... I would say probably the, the homegrown startups tend to do better than like overseas folks trying to expand in. Um, Asia is a pretty complicated place. My favorite, my favorite example there is you can be the US and still effectively lose the Vietnam War. Um, so it's not about having all the cash and all the firepower in the world. A lot of it is understanding local culture. You know, you're, you're in our jungle now. So things are a little bit different. And so I think we see a lot of pressure from the homegrown folks. People copying because copying is easy. Um, and then, you know, margin compression because age is all about margin compression. But then it's about building other things that keep customers. For us, our specialty has turned out to be you know, helping at the enterprise level. Enterprise cares about a whole bunch of things that are important reliability, quality of APIs, people who can speak the right language. And, and that's hard for people who are just starting out to be able to do. So we want to hold on to that enterprise use case. Which of your competitors do you admire the most? Yeah, great question. There's probably two that we come across the most. Uh, one of them is owned by a unicorn. Uh, and I think they were the first to build kind of APIs and, and I'd say good tech. They were with the first kind of wave of growth in Indonesia, which is e-commerce. So they captured those first. So I respect uh, them for building good product and then being great competitors. Um, we tend to win and lose deals based on kind of verticals that we do better or worse in. I then respect a lot of new starters because you really feel the innovators dilemma where people who are starting they don't need to protect margins. They don't need to protect bottom lines or, or revenues. So they can just go in and, and try a whole different business model. So I respect the kind of innovating in a business model. So I respect them for doing that. And then keeping us on our toes and saying, hey, how do we make sure we can adapt to different business models in case a, a new one takes off? Awesome. I always think it's great when someone doesn't just think of their competitors as rubbish and actually appreciating the impact on what you guys do as a business. It's really important to continue to understand the competition. Yeah, I think there's tons we can learn from them. The more we can learn how they think, why they think, the better we fight. As a founder, what do you think is the most important thing you can do for the company? Is it hiring? Is it vision? Is it culture? Yeah, I'll, I'll say it's culture. I'm pretty... Um, probably beating the culture drum more than but most, uh, but I think it's so important. Uh, and I define culture, well, there's a few definitions I really like, but one that relates to hiring is culture is really who you hire, fire, what you punish and what you incentivize. 
um, and so if I think of culture in that way, uh, it's very much about the people that we bring in and, and let stay in. Um, so uh, one advice that YC Growth gave us is, you know, as a founder, as a CEO, my job is no longer the product product. My product is now the company. And so I spend most of my time, well, I try to spend most of my time thinking about the company as a product rather than the actual product. You know, I love the actual product and I love selling. So I, I do as much as I can. I keep getting reminded by the board and by advisors, you need to spend time on, on the company. So culture definitions being hire, fire, punish, incentivize. Other definitions I like being um, its operating system by which your company works. So setting the, the rules of engagement, how do people interact? What does yes mean? What does no mean? What does done mean? These words really take a life of their own. So specifying that. And then how do you make decisions? How do we decide we're going to move one way or another? So that's all in that definition of the operating system. Um, and then there's the fuzzy stuff too. And I think that's really like we describe the, the words and adjectives that all companies use or startups use are roughly the same, like words around family or innovation or just kind of, kind of BS words. But how do you actually make that real? Um, and what choices do you make? And so that the definition I like there is, I think is a YC partner who just said, um, Culture is just an extension of the founders' personalities and how the founders interact with each other. Uh, and I really like that definition because then whenever we don't like something about our culture, the first thing is we look in the mirror and say, what are we doing wrong? And what do we need to change and set it an example? And so many times when I've noticed a behavior I really don't like, I then reflect and think, hmm, I think I demonstrated that behavior. Um, and so let me change. And then you see it change, you know, kind of trickle effect down in the next couple of months. So those are three definitions I like of culture and how we make them actionable for us. And how has the challenge of implementing culture changed as Zendit has scaled up? I imagine when it's a smaller group, it's a lot easier to do. But as things get larger, you're no longer involved so much heavily in, in product. Do you have policies and written down procedures or is it more kind of implicit in the way you behave and, and the way you interact with people? So for each of those three buckets, we have different tools. Um, for the higher fire incentivize and punish, higher fire is, high is easy. Um, we have a bunch of rules and docs about how we hire. For example, one unique that thing that we do, we're proud of, but it was really painful at the beginning and people said you'll never be able to hire people if you add this much friction, is we force a trial day or two or three where we get someone to work with us for free. It might be over weekend, public holidays during the week, and they have to take time off from their current job, but they actually work with us on a real project, real problem for a couple of days. It self-selects for a certain group of people because not everyone wants to do that. Um, but people really want to work, but you will do that. And so in, you know, in the earlier days, no one wants to do these child days and we were losing candidates. I was like, no, we're going to do this because it's going to set us apart. Four years later, people know that we do child days. People know that that's you know, our brand. And what I really respect is one of our competitors I heard from the grapevine through a candidate, that person said, oh, yeah, send it. They're the hardest place to get into in Indonesia. So, and I think that's a great reputation to have. Just, this is the place you want to go, but it's really hard to get in. Um, fire, we're pretty clear about that. Our rules about firing are, are pretty simple. Um, it shouldn't be surprised and do to others what you want them to do to you. So uh, we give lots of warning. Um, we try to help people. And then I like the kind of golden rule because it's an absolute, but it's very, very relative. So each manager can do it their own way, but it's a very respectful process, mostly, hopefully. Um, I can talk about like incentives and performance reviews, but I'll move on to the next category. This is operating system and how we talk. 
So for example, culture, I really admire Amazon's work culture. I know it's considered negative in a lot of media press, but I think that's mostly the press rather than actual. Uh, my time in Amazon, I loved. I think Amazon has had to compete since day one in a really low margin business. So they've had to build a really lean machine, whereas Google has a one trick pony that's really, really good trick pony. And so they can have a lot of like chillness in how they build. But Amazon is ruthless in, in starting new business lines, shutting them down if they don't work. Um, and ruthless in how they, they make decisions. So we do a lot of the same things, for example, six pages and how we communicate. So we expect pretty clear prose, not PowerPoints, because uh, there's a lot of bias in PowerPoints, despite me being ex-consulting and loving <laughs> PowerPoints. So this is an example on the like operating system side. On the fuzzy stuff, um, we try to do certain things like, um, I mean, in Indonesia Asian culture, the boss is always that there's a hierarchy. So um, we try to break those down. So for example, I still do one-on-ones randomly with with all p- different people in the stack and, and people give the feedback like I never thought I'd talk to my CEO um, ever working at this company because that's not normal. Um, and you know, open floor plans are still pretty new in Indonesia. Or uh, we do we do free meals. I think we're the first company to do free meals, home cooked meals in the office every day. And they're healthy. Part of our culture because we care about health and then also. It, we, we purposely make food not quite enough for everyone. And we did that by accident, but now we, we keep it that way because it forces everyone to rush down at 12 o'clock. And from 12 to about 12.30, everyone is stopping work, coming into the floor and eating lunch together. Um, and the way we've designed the room is you can't really sit in groups. The space is small. So everyone has to sit together, but that forces, you know, comes to cross. So some examples of what we've tried to do actionably. On that last point, I remember reading somewhere when Steve Jobs was designing an office somewhere, rather than have two bathrooms quite far away, he had them right in the middle, right next to each other, because the unplanned crossing of paths, it was really important for creativity. Yeah, the water cooler moment. I wonder with remote working and COVID now, how things like that get replicated. I've been thinking about how to replicate the house courtyard, just walking through on your way to class, you see friends. I think stuff like that's going to be very difficult, but I'm sure mm. someone will come up with a technological solution. It's super hard. I don't think we've crafted it. I think we're doing okay, uh, mainly because of things we did before, but I, I can't wait till we get to be physical again. Um, there's, there's something different about being able to bump into people. And it's really important for, well, Asia is all about relationships. If you don't have the relationships, work so much harder. Lastly, on, on Zendi, I saw that you had mentioned that Justin Khan, one of your mentors, gave you the phrase, be a cockroach, survive no matter what. When have you had to really adopt that mentality? So that's when he told it to us six weeks in when we pivoted. Um, And we were kind of dejected, but in a YC dejected kind of way, which is like, no shit, we just need to hustle. Um, That's when he said it. Um, How we've implemented it since is we talk about it all the time internally. We love the, we all hate cockroaches, but we love the image of it in our heads. but there's been times where we have been pretty strong against the wire, not in terms of fundraising, but in terms of um, you know, a bunch of clients leaving us early on because our product was bad. Uh, times when just we have fires over and over and over again. Um, that in the payments company, you really can't afford to have. Or a long time ago now, but our actual central ledger system went down at like 2 a.m. in the morning. We're relying on an external vendor, which we'll never do again. But that external vendor decided not to support us on the weekend um, because, you know, work-life balance. They get, but not when it's a ledger. Um, so there's times like that where you just have to be like, all right, let's, what's the minimum we can do? What's the cockroach approach to this? It's not going to be fancy. It's not the 
what Google would do, but it's what we have to do. Uh, we just have to survive. And um, there's other times then um, early on in our days, we lost our biggest customer and I was in a room with four other people and four of us were crying. Um, they'd just been yelled at and emotionally taxed for a few days and we'd been up you know, all night for a long time. Um, I'm very awkward in those situations. So I didn't know, didn't quite know what to do, but I just stuck in my head this memory of um, of these situations. So there's just so many little data points and stories where, um, yeah, the approach was let's just survive. Let's survive to live another day. And if we live another day, maybe we'll we'll be okay if we live enough days. I think it's such a great summary of a startup. You have to just keep on going, try and adapt to the many challenges that are thrown in your face and companies often don't end up being what they started out as so you have to adapt over time to the environment and yeah i just thought that was really good when i when i came across it what's the the vision for the future for zender how, how do you see the company expanding you mentioned you're going into a few new different verticals will you be looking to move geographies at all yeah i think of it as three vectors of potential growth one is we can go geographies we can go horizontally so um, different products or we can um, go deep into the stack uh, either up or down in the stack. Um, now across those vectors, uh, there's the horizontal is really obvious. So I think of us as a digital infrastructure company and the situation in, in Asia is that there's not many good B2B businesses. So examples of digital infrastructure, let's go to the U S you have everything from like, um, payments infrastructure where you have like a fist data an ADP, a Stripe, a plaid, like you've got so many billion dollar companies within payments that consumers have never heard of or see. Um, then you have taxation, invoicing, credit risk, data, analytics, um, rule of law, contracts, all these bits of digital infrastructure that must exist for countries to do well. US has that. I'm guessing Europe has that. Uh, we have none of that. Oh, we're very nascent forms of that. Um, but at the same time, Asia relies on relationships and trust. So we have a customer who trusts us with their money every single day. And so they ask us, can you help us with payroll? Can you help us with invoicing? Can you help us with taxes? Can you help us with data? Can you help us with credit risk? Can you help us with whatever? And so the vision for us is, yeah, let's build all these bits of digital infrastructure that's needed for the country to grow, to become really a service economy. And startups, the next unicorns can be launched in two weeks rather than two years because we can build all this infrastructure for them. Much like in the old days, you had to build a box, put in, install an operating system, build software. Whereas now you spin up an AWS instance. Um, so we're going to do the same thing for the infrastructure side. Um, I call it digital infrastructure. I call it hyperlocal because there's certain infrastructure we won't touch. Cloud, not our game. Email, not our game. Calendar invites, not our game. Um, but hyperlocal stuff, that's where we want to play and where we want to win. So that's horizontal. Um, going deep into stack, that's kind of boring, but just imagine like, yeah, you can go become closer to a bank or you can come closer to the consumer. Geographies is also interesting. I think like that's one that is like very sexy from a pitch, from a boasting ego point of view, but may not actually be from a from a execution ROI point of view. Um, in the fintech world, highly regulated world, um, once you have good regulated relationships, when you have good banking partner relationships, there's so much horizontal to go. Uh, when you go to a new country, you have to reset all of that up. Um, and so when I think about how do I spend the next investor dollar to get the returns, um, on average, it's better spent in the current market than to go elsewhere. Now that only that implies that the market's big enough. Now, when the fourth largest country on earth, with the fastest growing GDP in Southeast Asia, with the biggest populations and the right demographics, so we can afford to do that. Uh, whereas those who start in Singapore, too small, you have to go overseas. 
So yeah, we have the luxury to say, hey, our market's big enough to keep chasing. I think you mentioned it, the importance of listening to customers means that they tell you where to go next. They ask you for all of these different things and whilst you don't do it at the moment, it gives you a really good indication if you keep hearing the same things over and over, that there's a market for it and you're listening to your own customers and implementing what, what they want and that helps make them sticky. Um, they keep them in the Zendit ecosystem. Yeah, it's like the most basic YC principle, build something people want. And so that's all we do. We just pound that over and over again. And it's amazingly tempting to not do that, to build something that looks cool. Uh, you know, we're embarrassed. We're product people. We're people who are educated in, in lots of different markets. And so when we see some of our dashboard, for example, it's embarrassing. But that's not what people actually care about when they make decisions. So it's not actually what people want. Um, and I think Amazon's a perfect example. I think their UI is a, is a bit average. But that's not what people care about in shopping. They care about uh, price. Uh, convenience and selection so we have the same things in payments we have three things that we really care about and we can all drive towards those three things because that's how we think people make decisions um, on payments and b2b is nice yeah we just build what people want we don't need to guess I, I don't think i'm as smart as steve jobs i can't guess but in b2b you can say what are you willing to pay us for we'll build that now casting your mind back you graduated from haas in 2015 how, how did you spend your time yeah. what are your memories what did you enjoy doing I got advice early on, two pieces of advice. One from, I won't say which group, but some people within the institution said, no one from Haas has ever gotten into YC um, and not a ton of entrepreneurs are being created. And to that I said, uh, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, fuck that. I'll show them otherwise. The second bit of advice, and this was much more useful, was I think, um, Spend your first year, I talked to lots of people, but the way I distilled it was spend your first year finding co-founders. That's the most important because you're married to them for life. You're going to build a business with them. You can't divorce them or it's really hard to. And so find that. Once you've found really good co-founders and Berkeley is an amazing time to find it, then go, um, then go figure out what you're going to build together. And so I set myself a few goals. I said, okay, first year, I'm going to have fun. But I'm going to find co-founders. And then by the end of business school, I wanted to have a job from Google and Amazon. I wanted a job at a pre-IPO startup that I thought would IPO. And I wanted to get into YC. And I was told that's too ambitious and to focus and whatever, but I already told you what I think about people who tell me I can't do stuff. So, um, and I'm ex-consulting, so I like to hedge my bets a little. So I worked at Amazon for an internship, nice hedge bet, make sure I have a job. Uh, and then um, in, in that first year as well, I had the list of like 45 people that I'd met and thought maybe I could co-found a business with them. And I started doing hackathons with different groups, but the actual co-founders ended up with kind of like work, love at first sight. We just met, it clicked, we won hackathons together. It was clear that we could do something together. Um, and then Amazon was like the most chill job I ever had coming from consulting. So I managed to you know get the offer, but also spend time working on the startup. And second year was all about it. So. Um, Oh, sorry. One more part of this. I did Entrepreneurship 1A uh, with uh, Roman Toby. I realize now it's pretty different, um, but it was an amazing experience to to learn from those two. Two polar different ways of teaching, um, but an amazing combination. Um, Rob became one of our first investors, a, a long-term mentor, uh, really important in, in changing the trajectory of my life. Come second year, uh, after we did a few hackathons, we did we competed in a startup competition. I like made all my school projects around this this idea, this thing. I conscripted friends and classmates to allow me to like work on it as a project in different classes. 
Um, and that, that really allowed me to, to explore. So I'm really thankful to my classmates who like worked with me on projects um, that were related to Send It. Uh, and then through that process, then applied to YC. Uh, and now apparently, uh, I believe this is still true, uh, I haven't found anyone before us where a Berkeley MBA has got into YC straight out of school. So um, applied, it's the only one we applied to because we said if we can't do it, I'll take either my job at Google, Amazon or Square. Um, but you know, if I can do YC, I'll take this, I'll do this instead. Um, so applied into YC, we were lucky to get in. Um, I can talk about how we did that. I was going to say YC, Google, Amazon and Square. I mean, that's a good company to be picking from. Yes, um, I think, yeah, I had to burn some bridges, unfortunately, um, but I just, I couldn't say no to YC. Was it your intention you came to Haas to start a business? You knew that was what you wanted to do? Yes, I've always wanted to start something since I was a kid. My family's both grandfathers and then my parents are not tech entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs in their own right, um, all have you know, created their own businesses. So that's in my blood and my dad always hung like the, um, my grandfather did really well. No education, ran away from China, um, you know, gathered sticks initially. <laughs> that was his first job, gathering sticks and selling sticks at the marketplace. And then sent nine kids to international school, um, which from Malaysia to like Australia, UK. So that's like a pretty good run. So that's always been like the bar um, of what to achieve as an immigrant child. And then instead it's like, you know, you got to grow up in Australia. If you don't achieve a lot, then yeah, good Asian tiger parents um so i always wanted to be an entrepreneur and uh, uh i knew australia was in the right place if i wanted to do tech um, and i knew the valley was so hence why i came to to the bay switching gears yc i know yeah. we kind of already talked about you pivoting after six weeks and just conceptually how do you make the decision actually i don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again, because very often we're told don't give up, perseverance, that type of thing, to switch that mindset to be right, we've tried it six weeks, we're gonna do something else. So how did you kind of come to not continue with what you were doing? I think Justin Kahn was super helpful here because we probably, I mean, I'm very much of the mindset of like, keep going. Um, I think the difference was keep going if you're able to have a hypothesis and a set of assumptions that seem reasonable and keep going if it's not your idea, but you're, you've fallen in love with a customer problem and you really want to solve that. Because uh, if you really fall in love with a problem, not with product that you've created, a problem, there's, there's solutions to problems that you can build. Um, but if it's your own idea of a product that you want to push onto people, uh, but they don't have that problem, then that's not worth something pursuing. So we wanted a Bitcoin remittances for domestic workers in Hong Kong, Indonesian domestic workers in Hong Kong to send money back to Indonesia. We had a few assumptions. One, Western Union is really expensive and people don't wait, want to wait in lines for hours. Um, uh, two, that people were willing to kind of send money using uh, electronic money rather than physical. Um, and uh, so one I included two. One was around the cost and the other was around waiting in line for a long time. When we went to Hong Kong and started actually talking to people, we all the World Bank reports are wrong. It's not expensive to send money, actually. It's like less than less than one percent in many cases, and like uh, it was yeah, like the, less than zero point five in many cases. And it was cash to cash. So I put in cash in Hong Kong, immediately my father can pull out cash in, in Indonesia. That was a massively wrong assumption. So whenever I see that on a slide deck today, I'm still like, have you ever talked to a customer? Um, because World Bank reports are very different from reality. 
Um, the second was waiting in line. And we thought like, oh, no one wants to wait in line. But that's very much our view of the world. Um, in their view of the world, things that we heard was waiting in line is part of the social um, social gathering. And you know, in, in domestic workers in some of these areas, it was kind of a sad realization, but um, often they, they go to the parks on Sundays because they, you know, they, they don't want to be seen. They get kicked out of malls, kicked out of places. But when they're standing in line, that's one of the few times they have the right to be in AC, to be in, in the mall, in the building, in the train station where they aren't like just being kicked out. And so it was actually like, it was time to like hang with your friends, to be in AC. It wasn't seen as like a pain because otherwise they'd be sitting out on the grass, on the sidewalk, on, on a piece of plastic. Um, and so like, wow, we were so wrong, um, you know, putting our assumptions on others. Um, and then the speed I mentioned was super fast. So these assumptions were just totally wrong. Uh, oh, and we couldn't convince people to use a phone. Like this is the early days of smartphones. It was just coming into the population. Why trust a smartphone when you can put in money here at Western Union and it appears three seconds later? Um, so that's where we were like, okay, we're not in love with this problem enough. And we had come in with a solution. It was totally wrong. So that's why we pivoted. I love that in country, you're speaking to real customers. I, I took lead launchpad class here and we had to interview every week, 10 people and the amount of companies that just don't get out the building and talk to customers and would rely on that World Bank report that is completely wrong. Um, such a great learning experience and, you know, solve a problem rather than impose your solution onto someone else's idea of the problem. You kind of hinted maybe there was a story about your entrance into YC, how you kind of got in? I get asked all the time um, how to get into YC. I'm so glad now, like I, I've made it a personal mission that every year there's a Berkeley MBA that gets into YC. And I now I'm more and more further away from, from Berkeley as time goes on, but I still listen to stats and I help people as much as I can. And I, I believe that every year we've gotten um, someone into YC. So I'm proud of that. Um, so anyone who's listening, ping me. Um, you can find me online. Tell me you're Berkeley and I'll reply. If you're a business student, YC doesn't care about business people because we're useless. The way to get into YC is find great co-founders and be technical at something. So like technical typically means dev, but it might mean you're an expert in, in energy because it's your past job and you're trying to do an energy startup and great, you're technical. Um, so there's a few things that mattered. What I did was I spent a lot of time in the engineering school. I think partly because of the way I look, I look like I'm 18 years old and I look like I'm an undergrad computer science student. I tended, I hung out a lot in, in Soda Hall. I went to the events. I like can speak enough of the technical talk. If I don't have to code, I can kind of talk the talk enough. Um, and so I just went to all the events. And YC would show up. YC wouldn't come to the business school. They'd go to Soda Hall. I actually managed through my co-founders to get, uh, Kevin Hale was going through Soda Hall and he was doing office hours at, at Berkeley. And so we signed up for that and he gave us some really great advice. And even during YC, I think Justin Khan at the end of YC, when he saw in the slides, was like, hang on, you're an MBA? You know, what the hell? I thought you were you know, a computer <laughs> science undergrad. And I was like, well, that's your problem, Justin, not mine. Um, uh, but I think like, i.e. be technical. And so um, we got a few pieces of advice for getting to YC um, and hearing students. Team, number one, I, I heard like one of the biggest reasons that YC companies fail in their first year is founders break up. So how do you make sure you have good founders? How do you prove that with chemistry? Working products together, coming from the same job, studying together, all that stuff is good. Uh, next is, is the market big enough? I think that's really obvious. You need a billion dollar opportunity. Uh, school can teach you what, how to calculate that. Uh, the next thing is traction. So YC is all about launch, launch, launch. Like why are you waiting? 
launch, go see if you can get real users. So Kevin Hale is like, why can't you launch next week? We gave him a bunch of excuses. He said, stop giving me excuses, launch next week. Tell me what you hit in a few weeks time. And if you have any traction, then let's talk. Um, so I think those are like the, the three. And then the fourth is unique insight. The way it was described to me is what do you know that everyone else thinks is false, but is actually true? And the easiest example, the most famous one is Airbnb saying, most people think that you don't want to allow strangers to sleep on your couch or your spare bedroom. That is actually false. Like people actually want to let strangers sleep in their house. Um, so what is that unique insight that you know to be true that everyone thinks is false, but is actually true? One aspect, make sure you have that. Oh, and sorry, on the traction side, 7% week and week growth, which is about 30% month on month growth. But you've got to be able to prove that you have that, that traction. The other part, which is the harder, more nuanced part, very American style, is referrals. You've got to get someone to refer you in. I didn't appreciate this, and I think I was super lucky to, like, I met someone two years ago at a Haas event that this um, this founder, um, how I just bumped into her, was speaking to her at a random uh, Berkeley event. They were recruiting, um, and I just kept in touch with her because she'd been a founder. She'd gone to Sac State, and I didn't even know what YC was at the time. Um, and then I found out she went to YC. I remember she bought, uh, we were walking through the mission. She bought me ice cream. She was giving me tons of advice. She was going through my application and explaining how I can fix stuff. I didn't understand the referral thing, but I assume she must have referred me in because now knowing what I know, I think referrals are so important. Um, so I think those are the two buckets of elements, the referral bit, and then those four criteria that I think YC looks for. It's interesting, although not surprising that YC doesn't come to the business school. Uh, I, I think that's one area where, Haas and Berkeley in general, you know, has these pockets that don't really interact that much. Engineering doesn't interact that much with MBAs. And I've definitely seen people who are trying to start companies that are MBAs that keep asking, like, where can I find an engineering student? And there just isn't an easy way to facilitate that that connection. Um, so, I, I mean, hanging around uh, the, the the engineering school, I guess, is, is definitely one way to do it. But it'd be nice if there was a, a better approach. It's demand and supply, right? Like there's there's unlimited supply of business students. There's very limited supply of good technical talent. Um, so they don't need to come to us. Uh, and that was very like made very clear as you go through the process. Like they're smarter. Um, they have more job opportunities than we do. Um, so I think it's a little bit of humble pie to, to realize that and then say, okay, then therefore what's the approach? And I think a lot of people have been asked uh, kind of over the years, like how do you find the engineering person and I think a lot of us go into Soda Hall, even when we go to events with like, I want to find someone that will build my idea versus I want to find the right person and then let's figure out what idea we do. And I really think like I've learned, fall in love with the problem, not a product idea that you have, and then find the right marriage, find the right co-founders rather than find recruit an employee. Um, and I found that those tend to have higher returns in terms of better outcomes um, for founders. If we zoom out a bit, how would you contrast the, the US fintech ecosystem with that of Southeast Asia? When talking about you know, one of your first ideas was to be the Venmo in Indonesia, that implies US innovation coming to Asia. Do you think it's still predominantly that's the way innovation flows or is there a lot of innovation that you see going the other way? Um, I look at three massive markets. I look at the US, I look at China and I look at India. So the way I see somewhere like Indonesia, it's like the next proxy war, right? It's the fourth largest country. So we can learn from the three ones bigger than us. Uh, uh, and so I look towards US, China and India and say, okay, what worked and why? Why did Venmo work in the US? And why did cards work in the US? 
and people still have, you know, talk about their Chase bank accounts. Whereas in China, everyone only talks about Alipay and WePay. And then India, you have something interesting. You had like Paytm be really big, but then UPI come in, then Google Tez rise. And you have these very different dynamics where people are learning because banks realize, oh, if we end up like China, we have no relationship with the consumer. That's bad for long run returns. Um, so you have an India model where the banks like try to keep more of the pie and then Indonesia can learn from all of this. So I think uh, from a deep tech innovation style, yeah, maybe the US and China will continue leading on that front. Our countries need in Southeast Asia is, is at the first instance is to kind of, we can leapfrog. So we don't have to do landlines and then mobile phones, we can do mobile phones. We don't have to wait for cards to get to e-wallets or other forms of, of um, storing money, we can we can jump. So I think that's where we can learn, um, and so we we'll, we will learn from other countries. Um, I think that's great. Why why reinvent the same wheel? I think what's really different though is the we add in the layer of business model innovation. So yes, there's tech innovation. Then we add in the business model part, which is our countries are very different. It's not about best product. It's not just about a really nice Google Amazon style culture. I know people think Amazon is bad, but I think Amazon's really good just compare yourself to other companies. Um, you need to deal with regulators. You need to deal with big families. You need to deal with the power dynamics of the country. You need to deal with cultural nuances. You need to deal with religion and how that impacts. And so I think you really then you need the business model innovation to actually make it work. Um, and so that's where we're different. That's why I say, yep, I think we can learn from others, but we do have to create the localized version. Universal problems, localized answers. I think that legacy infrastructure that the US has is, is definitely holding payments back. I wonder, what are your thoughts on when China banks are, have lost the relationship with consumers? Do you see that happening in the US? I don't think so. Because the card schemes are so strong, um, I probably have a bit of a contrarian opinion, which is like partly the reason we haven't adopted eWallets the same way it happened in China or Asia is like cards work pretty well. Like there's not a lot of pain. Um, we will make up pains and, and we'll write reports that make up pains. But from a consumer perspective, it kind of works. It's okay. We have Venmo and we have Square Cash and, and there'll be there'll be things there, but it's not I, I didn't when I think innovation, I'm talking like, you know, nothing to WeChat Alipay. I'm talking about UPI in India, I'm talking about us going to, you know, QR codes as a default rather than going through all the steps that another country would. So I think that kind of drastic change, I think the network effect of cards is pretty strong and, and hard to break. Um so yeah, I, I don't see it immediately changing in the US and I don't see that there's a pain that has to change because um, it works for the US context. Last couple of questions. Who else in the fintech space do you admire? You know, thought leaders, other companies, who else do you think is doing a, a really good job in fintech? I think from a company, I think Afterpay is really interesting. This is biased maybe because um, I'm Australian, but uh, watching, watching them kind of take a very different approach to lending and consumer credit um, pitching lending as a savings. It's a very, actually, it's a very, I, I appreciate it because it's actually a very Asian idea. We, in, in Indonesia, we have this idea of a, something that looks like a savings, but kind of acts like a credit. So this blended thing. And so when I saw Afterpay really take off, I thought that's fascinating that this like, um, you know, very Asian concepts managed to be thought of independently and work really well. So I found that, that kind of business model innovation, I find really fascinating. In the US, I my people within both Braintree, PayPal, Venmo, and Stripe, we talk to them all at once. And it's really fun. And Adyen, now that we know some Adyen people, but it's really fun to talk to all of them and hear them talk about each other and then therefore form our own opinions over time. Um, because everyone, when you talk to them, everyone's winning all the time. Uh, but not, and I know the market's growing, but I'm not sure who's winning market share wise. 
but I respect Stripe for the marketing that they've done, like the brand that they've created for B2B product is unparalleled. I think that's so hard to create, like we always talk about B2B and PR, it's so hard to create this, this brand um, and they've managed to do so. And they've done like the good mix of being very public, also very secret. Um, so I admire that. Uh, whereas for Adyan, I admire how they've gone globally really fast and very different strategy. Instead of we have to build everything ourselves, they've gone into it. Let's partner with everyone and get the spread. Um, and then Braintree for being the dark horse of being not the like sexy one in the news, but just caring about enterprise and doing that really well. Not worrying about the marketing as much, but focusing on things that matter for their customers. Toss in Korea, I admired those guys because they brought direct debit to the country. So his story is like two years, he tried to convince Ben to give him direct debit, couldn't convince anyone, couldn't raise any money, like living off nothing. Uh, and then as I got to know him, he was just starting to get all the banks to agree to give him direct debit. Two years later, he was running 15% of all consumer payments in Korea. This crazy story of just persistence. No one believed him. No one cared about him. And then now he's like the hottest thing. He runs his company very different from how we work at Senate. He's like very much Netflix style. This is a sports team. If, if you're not performing you're out, but we will pay the best salaries. Uh, we're very like touchy, lovey-dovey, Bali style feel. He's that respect. You started your Indonesian network by a lot of cold emailing and then asking everyone you spoke to, two more people. And this is something that the Haas Career Center still teaches us. So who else do you think would make good guests for, for the podcast? Sure. I think lots of people would be willing to talk. Let me come up with some names. I think there's other founders that are worth talking to, like other Berkeley founders, you know, off the top of my head would be super down to talk. We could probably get some VCs to do some chats. I, I think a couple of our VCs would be down to have a conversation. Remind me afterwards. Awesome. That'd be great. Thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed all of your, your stories. It's been really interesting and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with us. If anyone watches, listens and ends up wanting to ping me, uh, I'm moses at sendit.co. Just put Berkeley in the title because my inbox is pretty big and I'm not the only one that goes through my inbox. So if it has Berkeley, it will stay in the inbox. Um, yeah. Great. Awesome. Thank you very much again.